The gospel lesson this morning comes from chapter 10 of Mark. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But, is, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them over to, called them, and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Our Old Testament lesson is from the book of Job. And if you look in your bulletin, you'll see there's just an awful lot of sections of this that have been selected over a couple of chapters. This is uh, very much toward the end uh, of the book, after Job has gone through uh, much of his suffering and listened to his friends and finally kind of petitions God and says, you know, what you have done is, is unjust. And then God responds with his two-chapter-long rhetorical harangue uh, against Job, of which I've just selected some sections of that, but we can hear God's response here to, uh, to Job's petition. So listen now and hear how God is speaking to you through these words. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning star sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed bounds for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stopped. <clears throat> Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern the paths to its home? 
Well, surely you know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings so that they may go and say to you, Here we are? Can you hunt prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their covert? Who provides the raven its prey? when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? Is it by your wisdom that the hawk soars and spreads its wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes its nest on high? And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Anyone who argues with God must respond. Then Job answered the Lord, See, I am of small account. And here ends the reading. Thanks be to God. God can be sarcastic sometimes. book of, uh, both the book of Job and certainly Jesus, they teach us very much that the reward for being faithful, the reward for being faithful is having been faithful. It is its own reward. And they teach us that our, our beliefs or our non-beliefs are not the ticket to heaven or the ticket not to heaven or our good actions or our bad actions are not tickets to heaven or not to heaven. Being faithful is its own reward. Being a disciple of Jesus is its own reward uh, because faith is not uh, a commodity exchange. Uh, it, it's not something that you know God says, well, you do this and I will give you this or not give you this. God is not the shop owner that dispenses salvation to us if we pay enough of whatever that is in belief or in right action or some combination of that. Uh, Luther very much protested what had become a very literal commodity exchange uh, through the indulgences. And it does seem like in, in human history before Job, before Jesus, in Jesus' time even, and today, that there are those who seem to profess this kind of faith as a, a mercantile exchange or a commodity exchange. So it might look like uh, you know, those that say it's, look at it as something where we have to go to God's till every day and profess a belief or do a good act and repurchase, uh, in a sense, this ticket to grace. Uh, and that if there's any day that we fail to do that or any day that we uh, sin or go into error, then we get this ticket to hell or to punishment. And that once we have that ticket, uh, then it's impossible to ever get a ticket to grace again. 
Or others seem to run it like this, where you go to the till and profess your belief and you get your ticket to grace and then you stamp it with the date and the time that you got it and now you have a free pass to do really whatever you want for the rest of your life because you've already received your ticket. And so there's no, uh, you don't have to do really anything, you can just do whatever you want. Or maybe it looks like this, where you go to the till and get as many tickets as you possibly can because you can't read them. You can't tell if they're stamped ticket to grace or ticket to punishment. And you spend your life in anxiety uh, and stress, wondering if you've ever been good enough for God, if you've ever earned enough grace tickets to, uh, to make up for the others. Or this one, where you go and you get a ticket and you don't look at it because it doesn't matter what it says because you aren't going to read it uh, anyway. You're just going to assume that it says ticket to grace and you're going to also assume that it is one of very, very few that God will ever hand out and you spend uh, much of your life, and I see some of this happening from the television preachers, spend much of your life telling others that they have the wrong ticket, you have the right ticket, and if they just follow you, if they just do what you're doing, uh, they'll be okay. Or maybe you get your ticket and then you blow it up to billboard size and display it publicly all the time with 400 watt uh, megawatt lights, uh, showing the world how incredibly faithful you are and deriding anyone who has a smaller ticket for their lack of faith or because clearly God uh, does not favor them. Or maybe, maybe, look at it this way. Don't bother looking for a ticket because it's not a commodity exchange. The ticket is Jesus. It's already been handed out to everyone freely without any cost to us. And with no constraints or caveats or conditions, and since there is no ticket, it can't be lost or stolen or run through the wash. Because there's no ticket, it can't be rescinded or taken away. It has no expiration date, and its cash value is priceless. It's a ticket that we could never, ever purchase by anything that we do but it's given to us, given to us by God. And that's part of the lesson that that Job and his friends learn in this book and part of the lesson that Jesus' disciples and through them, us. Uh, That's one of the lessons that they learn. And Job maybe knew that all along. Maybe Job knew that all along that, that God's grace or God's love can't be purchased in any way. Uh, But he did have a moment of certainly of at least forgetting it, if he did know it. But his forgetting came in the midst of incredible suffering. And so I think we can give him a bit of a pass for having a moment of doubt. Because Job is a man of great faith and righteousness. That's set up at the beginning of the book. Uh, And he's also wealthy. He has a family. And he's never complained against God. He's righteous. But if we look at Job's life, he's also really never had any reason to complain. He's had a fairly easy life, at least what it would appear. He's got a nice family, lots of cattle, 
lots of other livestock, lots of land, lots of money. And I think there is a, a, a truth that it can be easy to be faithful when life is easy, when there is no struggle. It can be much easier to be faithful. It can also be very easy at that point uh, to forget about God. And when one, when one is not worrying about money or health or safety or love, there's no reason to struggle with God and ask questions about sickness and death and hunger and poverty, loneliness, violence. You know, and part of faithfulness is to be in that struggle, to ask those questions that have no easy answers. Uh, the adult Sunday school uh, has been going through a program called Living the Questions. That's very much what faith is, to ask the questions and live into them, knowing probably not any really good, perfect, wonderful answers, but to live in, into the questions. Faithfulness is to be in that struggle, to look at the pain in the world and say, I believe anyway. And maybe I don't know fully what I believe, and I hope in a sense we're never so confident of what we believe that we say, I've got it perfectly nailed down. I know exactly what I believe and what we ought to believe. The struggle is the faith. And so Job has everything. He has no struggle. He has no complaints against God. Everything is good. But then Satan uh, shows up. Uh, and remember in this uh, the book of Job is uh, literary fiction. It's a morality story, a morality fable. And, and so Satan is not uh, a real person or a specific being. The Hebrew word Satan just means adversary, which could be even oneself, one's own sinful nature, one's own uh, proclivity to give in to temptations, uh, whatever it is that might lead us astray. But in the story, it's... Uh, Satan is one of God's angels. Uh, and Satan thinks that Job will stop being so righteous and so good if his life becomes imperfect. And God thinks otherwise, and so they make a bet, they make a wager, and God lets Satan do kind of whatever he wants to do with Job. And so Satan kills Job's family, except for his wife, uh, kills thousands of livestock, as thousands of other livestock stolen by neighbors. And so Job's wealth and his legacy are gone. But Job remains faithful and righteous. And so then Satan inflicts him with disease, boils, and sores. And still Job remains steadfast, even though he's scraping at his boils with broken pottery to find relief. And then three of his friends show up, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they show up and come to Job and they sit with Job for seven days. And they say nothing because Job has not said anything. It's that tradition that you don't speak to those who are suffering until they speak first to you. It's that ministry of presence which is so powerful. And if you want, you'd like to see the power of ministry of presence, go out some night uh, on the street ministry. And you'll see how powerful it is simply to be there, to be present with someone. And so they sit with Job, and after seven days, Job speaks, and he curses the day that he was born. 
And then his friends who have been good ministers of presence uh, for him for seven days now turn into really awful, uh, provide a really awful ministry to him. Because now, ah, Job has spoken. Now we can tell him what's wrong. And they say, clearly, you did something wrong. You must have sinned that you are suffering. And they tell him what he must do uh, to get beyond, uh, to rectify the situation. Because clearly, he must have sinned. You don't suffer unless you have sinned. Suffering is always God's punishment. That was what they believed. They were still in a kind of childish way of thinking uh, this mercantile God idea that God rewards the righteous and God punishes the sinners. And so if there is reward, you are therefore righteous. And if there is suffering, you are therefore a sinner. And Job's friends, these three friends, are incapable of going beyond their thinking to make room for God to act any differently than that. They have God confined to this very small box of reward and punishment. don't have room in their thinking for mystery or ambiguity or the struggle. And Job also has some of that outlook. He knows that he's innocent. And so he sees all of this suffering that's come upon him as a complete injustice from God. He wants God to account for this injustice. He says either, either, you know, Job wants to know either what he did wrong or wants God to admit that this is unjust and to rectify the situation. And as I mentioned, this is more not a a literal story. It's a morality fable, and it was written at a time when the Hebrew people were going through kind of what Job was going through. They'd lost their country. They'd lost their identity. They'd lost their temple. Many of them sent into exile. They had had everything, and now they had very little. And this this book is very much a product of that situation, of trying to put that into a narrative form or into a story form. Uh, As they struggle through a theological evolution of thought, going from thinking that says that God rewards the righteous and punishes the sinners to a more truthful kind of theology that says it doesn't always work that way. And then ask why. Why does it not always work that way? What is going on here? They're developing a new way of thinking to deal with good people being punished and bad people being rewarded. Uh, The faith is becoming a religion of self-examination, not just a black and white kind of thinking, list of points that you must believe or do, God is this, God is not that, Uh, but uh, becoming a a faith of self-examination, of examining itself, of asking questions. And so Job's friends offer all of these very unhelpful speeches, Uh, and then his fourth friend, Elihu, arrives and gives a final speech in which he condemns the thinking of the first three and of Job. And Elihu, also the text says, is the youngest of all of them. And he has remained quiet, he says, because he was the youngest and felt he ought to go uh, not speak before any of them. And so they also have this new way of thinking about the faith being represented in the story by the youngest person, by the newest person 
uh, amongst this group. And Elihu says that God is just, but also mighty enough to do what God wants. Even if that means bringing love and forgiveness uh, in places where it shouldn't be. Or even if that means that sometimes there is suffering amongst those who are faithful and righteous. It's a much more realistic framework. So we've gone from this uh, first framework where, where the integrity of God's justice was the most important thing, that God can only be seen as rewarding and punishing to a, a new framework that allows for the specific uh, life stories of individuals, that some people suffer for no reason through no fault of their own, and that some people have rewards through no uh, fault of their own. And so Elihu says, Job is suffering, and he did nothing to deserve it. That's the way it is. That's how things are. God's free to act however God wants. And that's not often how we want it, but that's how it is. And so it's the beginning of this reformation that continues through Jesus uh, against this idea of God, the mercantile God, of reward and punishment. And Jesus' disciples learned this numerous times that the faithful may very well suffer and that the bad people might very well gain rewards. But certainly Jesus is teaching the disciples that being faithful might lead to some suffering. But they will have been faithful. That's the reward. That they will have been faithful. There is no greater or least except the greatness of being a servant. (coughs) Not about coming out on top, but about relationships, about individuals. Uh, And James and John say to Jesus, we want you to do something for us. That's that mercantile God idea. We want you to do something for us. Let us sit at your right and left hand. And Jesus responds much as God did to Job's friends. You don't know what you're asking. Can you do what I do? And at the end of God's rhetorical harangue against Job of God showing how much more mighty God is, Job responds with the words, See, I am of small account. And compared to God, so are we all of small account. And yet we're big enough in God's heart that God listens and responds. We're big enough in God's heart that God cares, that God loves, and that God draws us in relationship. We're big enough that God cares enough to take our concerns seriously. Because we matter to God. We matter. God listens. God cares. And we matter to God enough that God came to us in Jesus Christ. And that is the only ticket that we need. Amen.